All right. <laughs> Got it. All right. And then we'll mute everybody for a minute. Um, okay. Oh, here we are over here. Mute all. All right. Okay, so here we are. Um, now, um, we saw that, um, you know, Judith went ahead and <laughs> got her way into the, not just into the inner circle, but she got into the tent <laughs> and beheaded Holofernes, the general. Uh, and uh, we, we talked a lot about that last week and celebrated her great virtue, her courage, her strength, and so on. Now, let's just take a real quick, like, uh, you know, a couple paragraphs review of the entire book. There is a terrible war machine that is crunching through the area, uh, killing and destroying not only the Jewish people, but also many of their most worthy opponents. The, uh, you know, the Edomites, the uh, Jebusites, the, uh, the um, uh, Moabites, um, all of these are, they're just being, you know, chewed up and spit out. And um, it's like the Death Star in Star Wars, if you remember that. So huge war machine, huge numbers, uh, just almost incomparable in terms of the ancient world. And uh, we see that um, uh, they finally come to the, to the, this, the Jewish people in, in the land of Judah, the southern part of uh, Israel today. And the Jews refuse to surrender, and good for them. Uh, they want to trust God, and they don't want to give way to uh, a pagan king who will make them sacrifice to pagan gods. So they're willing to fight. However, they have, like anyone, their ups and downs. And so uh, this little town called Bethulia, it could just be a diminutive version of the word Bethel, which is north of Jerusalem, about, I don't know, 10, 15 miles, okay? Kind of like, I don't know, um, not Hyattsville, but some some Laurel, maybe Laurel is Maryland is to to Washington D.C. Okay, so um, and um, they um, they they they're they're living on a high precipice. They're they're they have a walled city, and they are um, they 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 clear out the passes and so on. Now, remember, one of the first things we learned in terms of this image of spiritual warfare is that the race does not always go to the swift. Which is that old saying that you know the, you remember the the tortoise and the hare if you remember your old children's stories that I don't know if they're still read but that's what a lot of us who are older remember. Now, um, so we have a um, you know you have a huge army that they could never seek to match. So you have to fight a war in other ways, and it's the same with us who are in spiritual warfare. You have a culture that's just this megalithic thing that just comes at you with all of its different values and things that are at odds with things. And what are we to do? You know, and so we, well, we can't develop a, a simple counterculture that's as powerful or influential, or at least not likely. So what are we what are we to do? Well, pray, pray fast. What are your five loaves and two fishes? Remember, and with that, you've got Jesus. So I think the, the point is that all of us have to realize that. We can't just wait around for God to do something. We have to um, bring our five loaves, two fishes, continue to preach and teach. And the race does not always go to the swift or the powerful. Um, we've seen this in warfare. The Vietnam War brought us to our knees because small 
little kind of guerrilla tactics to brought down a mighty army, namely the American army or the Russians in Afghanistan and so on. So we have to understand there are there's more than one way to skin a cat. Sorry, sorry my little friend Jewel, my kid, I'm sorry. But there is uh, there's a lot of things which are um, we can't fight them on their terms, so we fight them on our terms. Okay, uh, and uh, this is important in spiritual warfare. Um, we we may not be able to have all the TV networks. We may not be able to go in there and buy out all the political parties. We we don't have that, but what we do have is our five loaves and two fishes and Jesus, and we need to do the work He gave us to do, and to realize that you know what. Even if you don't even look at the Bible, but but I did. I checked the last page. It still says Jesus wins hmm, about that. But beyond that, also, we have the, uh, the well, just look at history. Just 2,000 years, a very narrow slice of history. But in the age of the church, empires have come and gone. Nations have risen and fallen. Cultures and, and, and quagmires and silly things, fads and fashions, whatever, have all come and go. And here we still are preaching the same gospel we got from the apostles. Are you praying with me? You see, the vision is that we, we often get all tied up in these, these momentary but, but very present moments where there's a lot of turmoil, but we forget that we've outlasted every one of them, all right? So it, you're on the winning team, even if it doesn't always feel like that from day to day, all right? And uh, so these are some things, you know, for us to, uh, you know, to be, um, you know, to be aware of. All right. Now, um, I, I uh, my, my internet kind of went skirted there. Did you hear what I said? I'm sorry. Is it okay? All right. Now, um, so what happens is that they can't fight on the terms that, that are given to them. So what they do is they... <coughs> They wall up their city, they, they hide the, the mountain passes, and they pray. But even in their praying, they make a bit of an error that Judith calls them on. They just passively pray, God, save us. And they just sit there and wait for God to do something. <laughs> so what are your five loaves and two fishes? See, God, does, I'm, I'm, I'm going to solve this problem, but I want you to do what I ask you to do. So... Um, what are your five loaves and two fishes that you can bring to the problem? Well, okay, but five loaves and two fishes, what good is that against such a great need? Well, let's see, says the Lord. Okay, so this too is something for us to remember. Now, there were other themes and uh, things that we learned about spiritual warfare that were more particular and specific, but I'm going to have to leave those to the details, not the summary, okay? So here we come. Now, Judith doesn't have a lot, I and mean, she has some money. But that's not going to help her in this situation. They're just going to take her money. So the money's not going to help her. What does she have? Well, I'm going to just tell you right now, she's got beauty. And she knows how to work the, the rope line, so to speak, you know, uh, get herself into the inner sanctums. And the, she knows uh, she knows how to work it. And um, we can be a little cynical about beauty. We can be cynical about whatever. But I can just tell you that. Sometimes whatever you have, you got to use it and you use it uh, to the best of your ability and you get out there and you use it. Um, so because of her beauty and also her wit, 
She has a very carefully contrived plan that God gave her because she's open to hearing and praying. She's a woman of prayer. So what are her virtues? She has prayer, she has wisdom, she has uh, fortitude, and she has beauty. And she goes to work and makes use of these five loaves and two fishes or what have you, and ask God to help her. And she's courageous enough to step outside the city walls, not just wait for God to do something, but to say, Lord, I'm going to sally forth and you tell me what I need to do, but let's get this done. Okay. So she rebukes the Jewish people for giving God a timeline. They said, let's wait five days and uh, God will, if God doesn't help us by then, then we'll sin. And um, we'll eat food that we are not supposed to, you know, uh, not that quite that, but they will at least just surrender the city and let them have their way with us. Um, Judas rebukes him. Don't you ever give God a timeline, but also don't just sit on your butt and do just wait for him to act. Get up, do something, what, what, at least what you know he gave you to do and get out there and do it. So she decides to do it. She and her maidservant go out. And they, because of Judas' beauty, she's able to work her way all the way up to the highest ranks of the uh, of the um, uh, the Assyrian army, and she's able to insinuate herself, so to speak, all the way into the tent of Holofernes. But it, she she's brilliant. She is neither defiled. She doesn't eat Gentile food. She doesn't. Um, uh, use Gentile utensils, and she does not allow Holofernes to have his way sexually with her. Um, she she basically, pardon the expression, y'all, but she outdrinks him. She drinks him under the table. <laughs> now, part of the reason for this is that he's drinking strong wine. She's drinking the wine of uh, of Israel that's mixed with water and is a, a more mild wine. And so he, every time he, he finally becomes completely plastered, is passed out on his bed, and they, they put her in the tent so that Holofernes can have his way with her and leave. And But he's so drunk, he can't even rouse himself to wake up, you know. And uh, she beheads him. But she's also been accustomed them to allowing her to go out at five in the morning um, to pray out in the, in the, in the wilderness. And so because of this, she's able to walk right out of there with his head in the bag. And that's where we pick up the story. Okay. Now, before I go any further, any comments or questions about the basic plot that I reviewed with you? All right. So let's pick up now we're in Judith and the, uh, chapter we want to be in is, um, Verse, uh, verse, uh, chapter 13 and verse 12. We kind of looked at this briefly, but we didn't really, we said we'd get back to that this week. So I'm in Judith, uh, chapter 13 and verse 12. All right. So she's now with the head of Holofernes in a bag and her maidservant. She comes back up through the pass and is at the gates of the city of Bethulia, her hometown. So here we are. Uh, I'm at verse 12 of chapter 13. When the men of her city heard her voice, they hurried down to the city gate. Now, the image you want to keep in mind here is that there's walls around the city. And on those walls are a kind of a parapet or a walkway where, you know, men would kind of look out and protect. And there'd be certain towers along that parapet where, you know, they would have some weapons and things. 
So they hear her down below. And so now they come down off the parapet and come to the city gate, recognizing her voice, and they open the gates to her. So 13, they all ran together, both small and great, for it was absolutely unbelievable to them that she had returned. <clears throat> they expected her just to be killed. Well, they didn't know God, and they didn't know Judas. All right. Um, <clears throat> they opened the gate and admitted uh, them, namely Judith and the uh, servant girl, and they kindled a fire up for light and gathered around them. And then she said to them with a loud voice, praise God, oh, praise him. Praise God, who has not withdrawn his mercy from the house of Israel, but has destroyed our enemies by my hand this very night. Okay. Then she took the head out of the back and showed it to them and said, see, here is the head of Holofernes, the commander of the Assyrian army. And here's the canopy beneath which he lay, his, uh, he lay in his drunken stupor. Um, the Lord has struck him down by the hand of a woman. Okay, maybe not politically correct, but um, let's, let's return to this idea. There's this huge army, unbelievably huge, you know, 170, you know, you know, you know, I'm sorry, seven, you know, 17,000 infantry and, and another 7,500 cavalry. And, you know, so you've got this huge number, this, this huge war machine coming at them. And how does God bring the, this army down? See, by a slightly larger army? No, by the hand of a woman. Now, Maybe today we don't like to hear this kind of language, but nevertheless, at the end of the day, um, if he, even if it was just by the hand of one man. So let's go to a different paradigm. Let's go to the, the, the Death Star and Luke Skywalker. Do you remember Luke Skywalker? Do you remember Star Wars? Um, do you remember this huge juggernaut? This, this Death Star was so powerful it could destroy a planet and kill 17 billion people in one blow. Um, this Death Star was unbelievable. Nothing, no one had ever seen anything like it. It was powerful beyond imagining. How did they bring it down? Little Luke Skywalker in his X-Wing fighter, which is a tiny little thing compared, like a speck of dust compared to the Death Star, but he's used to flying in narrow canyons back home, and they have all these computers and things to help him to target the right area, but he says, this is too confusing. I can't handle this. So just like King David, he throws off the armor, throws off all that computer stuff, and he quotes, let the force be with him, or the equivalent of taking out a slingshot and a smooth stone and bringing down Goliath with just one blow. And so he flies that little X-wing fighter in there, and he knows just when to hit it, and he knocks the whole Death Star out. One young man, maybe of 22 years of age, brings down the entire empire. So you see the vision. This is how God often works. So let me remind you of something in the Bible, a consistent theme, which is called remnant theology. Remnant means a smaller portion of something bigger. And generally, if you look at both church history and biblical history, God almost never brings down the enemy by a larger force than the enemy. He uses a small remnant, a charismatic leader, someone to go and lead uh, God's people. Um, and in, a, in church history, we see that at dark times in the church, um, 
in the dark moments of the 13th century, um, you, you find Francis of Assisi just starts walking around and preaching, uh, first to the animals and then to humans. Uh, Catherine of Siena, you see St. Teresa of Avila, or you see in the 16th century, or you see John of the Cross. Um, again, uh, what I'm trying to show you is that the way God changes and things for the better is often not through some biggie wow project or some biggie wow you know, army of things, but rather subtly, uh, almost in a hidden way. So right now, I think we're, we're all agreed that we're kind of at a moment in our culture that's pretty dark. Um, a lot of division, a lot of hatred, in addition to um, just unbelievably foolish and stupid things like a man can have a baby. So we're, we're at this point, and how will we ever get out of this morass, this confusion? Well, I don't know, but maybe somebody's already walking around out there who is going to rally us. We, they may come as if out of nowhere, but I just want you to at least be open to the fact that God's got something up his sleeve. It isn't always a bigger army or something biggie wow, all right? Seldom is the church um, made more holy or the world made better by a, a large blue ribbon panel or a commission of either politicians or bishops or anything. God almost always has his David. He almost always has his Moses. He almost always has his Judith or his Deborah. Okay? So, um, look to this. Uh, pray for it. God is going to be raising up someone who will lead us out of this darkness. And whoever that is, just ask God to continue to bless that person and prepare them. Okay? All right. Now, let's read on. Um, it says here that, um, let's see, I want to pick up with verse, uh, well, just start with 15, okay? Then she took the head out of the bag and showed it to them and said, see, here's the head of Holofernes, the commander of the Assyrian army, and here is the canopy beneath which he lay his head, drunken, his head in a drunken stupor. Um, the Lord struck him down by the hand of a woman. As the Lord lives, who has protected me, in the way I went, it was my it was my face that tricked him to his destruction, and yet he committed no act of sin with me, and to defile or to shame me. So we talked a little bit about this, but let's review. She didn't. She did go into that quote house or tent of a Gentile. Um, that's why she would go out every night, leave early in the morning to go and, and take a ritual bath to cleanse herself from impurity, not body odor. All right. I mean, whether she had it or not is not the point. We think of showering or bathing just to get rid of, you know, dirt or body odor. But this for the Jewish people was was an idea of getting rid of ritual impurity. She had technically been in the tent of a Gentile, but she did not use his utensils. She did not eat his food. She did not drink his wine. And she certainly did not have uh, intimacy with him. Okay. So in all these ways, she's able to say, I was not defiled. And to the extent that I incurred any ritual impurity, um, I, was, I, I, I purified myself and bathed, you know, the bottle of the Jewish law. So why is this important? Well, remember, maybe to us, there's a lot of fuss budgety stuff here. But the image here is her faith, her piety. She's a strong Jewish woman. The point is she's Jewish and she follows the law. 
and she doesn't give way or compromise on this stuff. And this makes her strong. Remember again how Akior had said that, you know, if you can get them to sin against their own teachings, their God will forsake them and they're easy to beat. But if you can't and won't, they remain strong and you won't, you're going to find it very hard to defeat them. So Ju Judah in her, I mean, Judith in her virtue outwits the entire Assyrian commanders, all the senior officials of the, of the Assyrian army. Why is it because she, she has a greater education or better, uh, she's been to, um, to the war college and studied, you know, military strategy? No, because she has virtue. You see, virtue. Now, Fulton Sheen was, um, most of you remember, was a well-known bishop back in the 50s through the 70s. And um, he was well-known to say, we have tried, and he talked like this, we have tried every kind of program, blue ribbon panel, councils, and sub synods, and, you know, to, to change and reform the church. But there's only one thing that has never been tried, holiness. You know, so we want to pull it off by some kind of group think or, and you know, what's going to change the day is when you and I have virtue and we get holy. Okay. And as you'll start studying next week, virtue is not just about, you know, being nice. Virtue is about a habitual ability to act in a way that promotes the good, namely to know God, to love him and serve him in this life and be happy with him forever. And to the degree that you have virtue is another word for strength, strengths. Okay, so enough said for that for that for now. All right, but you notice again, um, um, you know, she, she's indicating this not out of pride that she didn't sleep with him, she hasn't been defiled, never ate their food, and so on. She's saying that I did this as a faithful Jewish woman. So what does the name Judith mean? Does anyone remember? It just simply means Jewish woman, Jewish woman. So we're, we're trying to avoid just taking this all and saying Judith was a, a cut above the rest. This is what a Jewish woman should be like is the point, right? And giving her that name. Now, um, so as I say, this is something open to all Jewish women and also the Jewish men. Faithfully follow what God says, and you will be strong. Isaiah says, if you are not, if your faith is not strong, you will not be strong. Okay? All right. Moving on. Uh, verse 18. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Verse 17. All the people were greatly astonished, and they bowed down and worshiped God, and said with one accord, Oh, blessed are you, our, uh, blessed are you our God, for you have brought into contempt this day the enemies of your people. Then Uzziah, you may remember he's the mayor or the governor of this little region, said to her, Oh, daughter, you are blessed by God most high above all women on the earth, and blessed to be the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth, who has guided you to strike the head of the leader of our enemies. Your hope will never depart from the hearts of men as they remember the power of God. Now may God grant this to be a perpetual honor to you, and may he visit you with blessings because you did not spare your own life when your nation was brought low, but you avenged our ruin, walking in the straight path before God. And all the people said, amen, amen. Some translations say, so be it, so be it. Now, um, 
Notice again, how did she do this? It says it right here in the text. You did not spare your own life when our nation was brought low, but have avenged our ruin by walking the straight path before our God. In other words, by the life of virtue. Okay, this is what made you strong. One of the Psalms says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm smarter even than my teachers. I'm smarter than my enemies. I'm smarter than all who have ever taught me because I walk in your ways. Now, that sounds like a boast. Sounds like, you know, who do you think you are talking about yourself like that? But the point is that because I walk in your ways, you know, you can study all kinds of crazy, you know, esoteric things. But in the end, you still can't, you know, it doesn't mean you know how to get home or tie your shoelaces. There's, there's different kinds of knowledge, but the most fundamentally good form of knowing and being is virtue. Habitually living the life of virtue, okay? Um, this is what gives us strength. All right. Now, um, we're going to go to uh, verse 14, all right? What's the upshot of this? Because you still got an army sitting out there, right? You've got an army and they're out there. And um, we're not done yet, but um, so how are we going to send them into a panic? Now, let's talk a little bit about Holofernes. He was this incredibly charismatic general, this leader. And um, on account of him, um, he, was, uh, uh, he was able to rally quite an army and inspire quite a, uh, uh, a loyalty to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, of, of Assyria. Now, with all that in mind, um, if you're going to kill something, you strike the head, not the tail, right? So um, they have here struck the head. But here's a both, this is sort of a weakness that we should always be aware of, I think, in institutions, in parishes, in, in the church, and certainly also in the world. <laughs> There's a danger of having a certain charismatic leader. As Jesus says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So uh, the danger can be um, that you, you have a, a person who's such a charismatic leader that once they either are taken out through some sudden death or just taken out through old age, um, that there isn't someone to step in the wings and take up the thing, uh, take up the, uh, the leadership. One of the biggest flaws you can have in an organization is that you depend too much on a charismatic leader and that, you know, leaders aren't training leaders to step in behind them. It's all about the personality of the, um, of the uh, leader. Now, I think I gave the example the other night of um, in the young adult Bible study of Steve Jobs, you know, out of Apple. You know, I have to say, I think Apple's kind of floundering. They're certainly not as competitive or as creative as they used to be because Steve Jobs is dead. Who stepped in behind him? I don't know. Do you know who's running Apple now? I don't have, I don't know his name. Um, sometimes in a parish, this can be the case where a certain pastor becomes kind of the, you know, the great go-to and um, he's either, you know, transferred or dies or whatever. And um, is uh, suddenly the parish kind of flounders or this is not true just in Catholic churches, but if you were to go over to Jericho City of Praise near the um, uh, land over there to near the big Redskin Stadium, you may remember that was one of the first really big mega churches, Betty Peebles and oh my, you know, it was hard to 
you know, to be just not admiring of the huge numbers and the strength of that community. But then she died and her sons and other uh, children squabbled over the property. And right now, Jer city, Jericho City of Praise is just a little tiny community as far as I'm aware. Um, so you see, this is a danger now, but it's a consistent problem. Um, so I would encourage any of you in the parish who are leaders, what are you doing? Who are you training to come behind you? Because it is a danger not to let um, organizations or groups of any kind simply depend on charismatic leaders who then are taken out and then who steps in when the thing flounders. Okay, did I see you, uh, Liz, with your hand raised up or no? You know, I'm a pest when it comes to trying to train people behind me. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it's, it's, I've been finding it consistent across the diocese, trying to find uh, people like in their 30s and 40s willing to step up and uh, get the necessary training yeah. uh, to stand uh, uh, in, in the breach with authentic Catholic faith. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, you, you just can't walk in the door and um, and yeah. say, you know, I want to do this and not be willing to um, learn. learn faith and, and teach what is true. Yeah. And uh, uh, because the truth is what sets people free. You have people's salvation in your hands mm -hmm. and you can't just uh, go willy nilly and say, this is what I think and this is what I feel and um, stand uh, <clears throat> Stand for the Catholic faith and say, uh, you know, this is what the Catholic Church teaches and say what you think it, it, it teaches. You have to say what the church teaches mm -hmm. and uh, be willing to stand for it. Um, so yeah. it's difficult all over. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, um, oh, I'll, I'll get to you in a second, Hart. I'm sorry. I just follow up. But I, I want to say for our own parish. Luckily, we've been given the grace to have over 25 seminarians come through here, at least in my time, uh, to study and learn. And um, uh, we then, you know, we're, we're pretty good in the, in the church about training priests to come behind the old guys. Um, we're not as good, though, at the parish level of, say, training a new DRE. I'm, I'm sorry, Shirley, I don't need to pick on you. I mean, or, or because it's hard. Or a new member, uh, leader of the Sodality or the Holy Name. You know, we have... We, we have to, I think all of us get better. Now, surely you are doing some work in that. So I don't mean to pick on you. I'm talking about parishes in general. So anyway, enough said. Howard, you had something to say. Yeah, uh, for, for me, Monsignor, I just want to piggyback on what Liz said. It so much can't be of the Catholic faith, but mm -hmm. it must be a biblical faith. Because you can have a Catholic faith or you can have any type of uh, denominational faith and be totally out of the will of God. Mm, mm -hmm. And this is what I like about you, Monsignor. Even though, uh, you know, the, the Pope and those bishops and all of them, you know, they, they have faith, of course, and they, you know, with the, some of the things you mentioned on this teaching about how they need to stick with the scriptures. Yeah. And this is what I like about you. You mm. stick with what the scriptures say. Yeah. Mm. This is what is most important. 
it's so much it's not so much built on a denomination but it's yeah. built on what the scriptures are saying and getting the right interpretation on what the scriptures are saying because you got a lot of folk out here that's in the faith but and when you look at some of them they are totally out of god's will Yes. And one thing I like, the, another thing that you brought out very clear, Monsignor, which I really appreciate about mm. that, uh, uh, the theology, the remnant theology. Mm. Uh, that's very important because God uses uh, his his power and his might is mm. directed in another way. We might see it like, OK, well, uh, when another country sizes up another country. They look at the military might before they even try to go on and take over whatever they want to do. Yeah. They look at the military might of a country. You look at America. America's strong militarily. China, they're strong militarily. Yes. Russia, they are strong. China's got one billion foot soldiers ready to go within the blink of an eye. Yeah. But the thing that you brought out that I really love, Monsignor, is that God will raise up someone. Mm. That's it. To yeah. deliver us, and I love that. I love it. It's so true yeah. because uh, I think you remember the story of Gideon, uh, Monsignor. Oh, yeah. Some of y'all yeah, certainly Gideon. What he, he didn't consider himself a leader, Monsignor. Oh, you know, but go. God encouraged him. <laughs> even, he did what he tied him down by the huh? Even <laughs> he, he reduced yeah, the army. Right. And, and what was that number? The army, uh, uh. Monsignor, what, was, what what number did he start off with there first? Him, and he had 30,000 men. And, so they're outnumbered two to one, but then God said, your army's too large. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so tell the cowards to go and, home. And, and they did 20,000. And what, what was the end number that, he, that God ended up giving them? 300 men. But yeah, I just wanted to bring it out. Very, very point. You brought that out very well. I appreciate that. I'm back right, on me. Good. good. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, let's continue um, into 14. Let's, let's finish it out. Um, the last chapter is mainly a hymn. So, but let's um, continue. So, okay. So you've got a, a dead commander, Holofernes, and an army still in camp. What are two possible outcomes? Well, I'll just supply them. One is that they're infuriated and they come and destroy everything in sight. The other is that they're, they're, they're demoralized and they become... Uh, they, they just scatter. And now, so Judith, knowing this, has some, quote, advice from them. Again, as a virtuous woman, as a wise woman, she's in touch with God. Uh, by the way, I want to say, in addition to this, and I'm trying to pave the way for our study of the virtues in the next few weeks, I want to say that a virtue, nothing clouds our intellect like sin. Sin makes you stupid. Uh, we do. We say we have bad judgments. We say and do dumb things because of sin. But if you and I have a virtue, our, our thinking, our mind gets clearer, and so on. And this is why Judith, this woman of virtue, is able to give some advice in a very murky situation because she's not. Her intellect is not clouded with sinfulness and infidelity or a lack of faith but rather her mind is enlightened by virtue and by the faith. Now, she says this in verse 14, Judah said to them, listen to me, my brethren, and take this head of Holofernes, in other words, and hang it on the parapet of your wall. Uh, and as soon as the morning comes and the sun rises, 
let every valiant man take his weapon and go out of the city and set a captain over them as if you were going down to the plain against the Assyrian outpost. Uh, only do not go down. Then they will seize their arms and come up to the camp and rouse the officers of the Assyrian army. And they will rush into the tent of Holofernes and not find him. Uh, in other words, it's, they'll find his body beheaded. <laughs> um, uh, and they will not find Holofernes over them and they will flee before you. And all who live within the borders of Israel shall pursue them and cut them down as they flee. But before you do all this, bring Achior, the Ammonite, to me, and let me see and recognize the man who despised the house of Israel and sent him to us uh, as if to his death. Let, let, let me go back to that. I think I've read that incorrectly. Verse 5. But before you do all this, bring Achior, the Ammonite, to me, and let him see and recognize the man who despised the house of Israel, namely Holofernes, and sent him to us as if to his death. So they summoned Achior from the house of Uzziah. And when he came and he saw the head of Holofernes in the hand of the, of the men at the gathering of the people, he fell down on his face and his spirit failed him. And uh, when they raised him up, he fell at Judith's feet and knelt before her and said, Blessed are you in every tent of Judah, in every nation, those who hear your name will be alarmed. Now tell me, tell me what you have done during those days, um, during these days. And then Judith described to him, uh, described to him in the presence of the people all that she had done from the day she left until the moment of her speaking to them. And when she had finished, the people raised up a great shout and made a joyful noise in their city. And when Achior saw all that God, the God of Israel had done, he believed firmly in God and was circumcised and joined the house of Israel, remaining so to this day. Now, um, why is she so interested in bringing Achior into the, you know, in a way, you know, he was helpful in giving some intelligence, but he was a fairly minor role, really, at the end of the day. He kind of told them what they already knew. Um, why did she want to bring him uh, before? Well, uh, what I would suggest to you is that what the Lord is doing here for us, the reader, remember what did Akior say? He says, if you, their faith is strong, it's hard, they're hard to be. God is with them. If their faith is weak or you get them to sin against their faith, their faith is destroyed and God will God that will forsake them and let them be destroyed. So note to the reader, that's you and me. If your faith is strong, you will be strong. If you are obedient to God and practice the obedience of faith, you will be strong as, a, as an individual, but also as a people and a nation. Life will not be trouble free. It doesn't mean it's, there's going to be never any conflicts or any losses, but these things will be minimized and contained, and you will stay strong. Now, here we are in America. It is the year 2023. Um, we've largely, collectively speaking, not all of us, but the vast majority of this country has, for the last 40 to 50 years, thrown aside the scriptures, have said, God, who is he? I don't care. I'm God. I have the God of my, the God within, the God of my own understanding. I will decide what a God is. I will make up the truth. 
I will decide what I want to do and I will decide whether it's right and wrong. How are we doing? Are we stronger? Are we more united? Or are we more divided and angry and bitter and fighting each other about even basic things like what is a woman? And you decide. I can tell you right now where we are is in a place where I think we hate each other more than our enemies, whoever they are. Um, we're divided about 50-50 in this country right now. And it, it's just it's just an awful, awful situation. There's anger, hatred, bitterness, racism. There's unchastity. There's all kinds of things that are just separating us. Even the most basic things like, what do we mean by words like marriage or man or woman or you know, what is the purpose of life or suffering or all these things are deeply disputed. Why? Because we cast away the common reference point that we call the scriptures. We used to, we never lived it perfectly. Can, can we say racism? Can we say uh, difficulties in the past where we didn't live up to the values, but we all at least had something to go in. How did Martin Luther King, did he simply preach some Vaguely, he often referred to the scriptures. He also referred to the Constitution, but he was always depending on the biblical narrative uh, to speak of justice. And um, he was a preacher at the end of the day. Um, the civil rights movement, for example, came out of the churches, and I could go on and on. But at some point, when America had reference to two fundamental documents, namely the scriptures, and our, well, maybe three, Declaration and Constitution, we were able to say this, these are things we fundamentally agree on. How do we implement them? And we would fight, but we would resolve them because we were all looking off the same page. That is all gone now, my friends. It's gone. Nobody, we're post-constitutional. The Constitution is evolving or it's a dated document, but the scriptures, they're gone. Who wants to read that old dusty book? Now, not everybody says this, but the, the majority, unfortunately, do. The scriptures are passe, and we're in trouble. So what does Achior in this story represent? He says, you stay close to what God has taught, what God has revealed. You base your life on this and call others to base their life. You set up a culture and a, and a nation and a people who, who say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You'll be strong. You take this away, throw it all away, do your own thing. Uh, you're going to enter into a suffocating subjectivism and ultimately weakness, and you won't be able to rouse yourself even to go fight the enemy because you say, well, who's my enemy? Who's to say? And we'll just, you know, you just get lost. Okay, so all the, it's kind of like a circular firing squad. We end up with a circular firing squad. We hate each other more than we hate our enemies, okay? Like Satan or demons or, you know, you see the idea. All right. I think that's why she, the, the, the God, the Holy Spirit, in this story, wants to get Judas to say, bring Achior here and let him see that I accomplish this not by compromising, not by saying, well, God will understand if I sleep with a guy or if I eat pagan foods or if I uh, violate other things. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I didn't accomplish this by compromise. I accomplish it by fidelity to God's teachings. Okay. And I think that's what Akior's place is here. All right. If you're going to win, 
you'll never win on your terms, only on God's terms. And I think Howard was saying that earlier, right? You know, membership isn't enough. You know, people can be members, but they don't believe it. They don't live it. They don't teach it. They, uh, they're, they're spouting other stuff. All right, Liz, uh, you got your hand up. One of the things that I, I, I believed that I had to wait till I got in my 60s to realize mm -hmm. that what I had to win at is the, deciding that winning was my salvation, my, my place at heaven. Yeah. That, that was my goal. Mm. And that I wasn't um, winning at something here on, on this, this mm. plane. Mm. Although the kingdom of heaven is now, Mm. I had to learn to live in the the, the eternal kingdom, mm. and and that that I that my way was never going to be easy while I was here, mm. but I was always committed to uh, my eternal salvation, and um, <clears throat> and and slowly but surely, little by little, mm -hmm. um, my assurance. Um, for the that that the Lord was always with me, mm. regardless of what was going on. Uh, my confidence was was um, better. Yes, and I could, I could, I could endure all kinds of things with with a different mindset mm. and uh, with a different level of a different kind of joy. Yeah. And that's because you're different kind of peace in his teaching than his truth, and, and a different kind of peace. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's a um, it's a different mindset when when you can change your um, mm -hmm. change the your your trajectory trajectory. Is that how you say it? Trajectory. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and your um, orientation. Uh, is different yes and uh your expectation uh is more real more yeah. what christ said it should be mm -hmm. in relationship to this earthly plane and uh the plane that we are trying striving for because your earthly plane is never going to be pain-free um uh difficulty free or any of those kind of things that the world says it should be yeah, yeah. And I, I think what you're basically saying, Liz, is that the word of God isn't just an informative word. It's transformative. And it, it, it doesn't just give us, you know, you could read a novel uh, by somebody who, you know, murder mystery or whatever it is, and, you know, be entertained by it, but largely unaffected. But to really take up the word of God and read it is to be changed by transformed. Your thinking, your priorities, the way you understand this world, victory, the way you understand victory and defeat, the way you understand these things is completely changed. And so that's that's I think I hear the point that you're making basically in, in, in a couple sentences. Okay. Great. Super. Now let's see here what the upshot of all this is. We're gonna pick up um and we're gonna pick up with um um, verse 11. Now, again, remember, she her advice to them is pretend that you're going down to them, but don't. And I'm like, you're, you're beginning to come down the hillside 
or the mountainside, and then basically stop and draw them. I want them to see the head of Holofernes on the parapet. What's a parapet? It's kind of like a corner wall where there's usually a turret. Uh, and it tends to be one of the highest points on the city wall. Um, so we'll leave it at that, but I hope you can kind of understand what's meant by a parapet. All right, verse 11. As soon as it was dawn, they hung the head of Holofernes on the wall, and every man took his weapon, and they went out in companies to the passes in the mountains. Notice they didn't say they went into the valleys. They said they went into the passes, uh, which is still up in the hillsides. And when the Assyrians saw them, they sent word to their commanders, and they went to the generals and the captains and to all their officers. And they came to Holofernes' tent, and they said to the steward in charge of his personal affairs, wake up our Lord, for the slaves have been so bold as to come down against us and to give us battle in order to be destroyed completely. In other words, they're in our hands now. We have them. Okay, we smoke them out of the city. It's like, I don't know, you put smoke in a room and the rats all start running out. Okay, all right. So Bagoas, he's one of the, he's the kind of the chamberlain, if you will, uh, went in and knocked at the door of the tent for he supposed that you, uh, that he supposed that Holofernes was having a nice little sleep with Judith. All right. But when no one answered, he opened and he went into the bedchamber and found it, found it thrown down, found, found Holofernes' body thrown down on the platform, dead. But his head was cut off and missing. Where's his head? <laughs> okay. Can you, you don't, don't miss the comedy of this, okay? His head was missing. All right. Um, so this, this chamberlain cried out with a loud voice and wept and groaned and shouted and tore his garments. And then he went to the tent where Judith had stayed and he did not find her. And he rushed out to the people and shouted, they have tricked us. Our Hebrew woman has brought disgrace upon the house of the king of Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. For look, here is Holofernes lying on the ground and his head is not with him. We have... They have taken the head of our of our commander, and we don't know where they put it. Okay, okay, all right. Um, and um, verse nineteen: When the leaders of the Assyrian army heard this, they all tore their tunics and were greatly dismayed, and their loud cries and shouts arose in the midst of the camp. Oh my, my, my! Um, so we see that they are it says here dismayed. It's a strong word. It means to be to be completely disoriented, to be, what do we do now? Who do I call? I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's like, you know, my phones aren't working. How can I, you know, you know, so Holofernes was there all in all. He was the guy you went to when you needed instructions. So the head has been taken off. All right. Verse chapter 15. When the men in the tents heard all this, they were amazed at what had happened. Fear and trembling came over them, and they did not wait for one another. But on, with one impulse, they all rushed out and fled by every path across the plain and through the hill country. Now those who had camped in the hills around uh, Bethulia also took flight. And all the men of Israel and every one of them that was a soldier rushed upon them. Now, uh, let's, let, before we talk about the battle, why this fear? 
what is it about fear? Well, we've just been through. Um, oh, Debbie, do you have a question? I saw you. Um, okay. Let me finish a couple of things. If you do have a question, just put your hand up, okay? Um, okay. All right. Um, the um, You may recall that some, some time ago, about th three years ago, somebody told us about this little virus that could kill as many as uh, four or five million of us in America. And um, we were all put into a panic and we almost did anything, anything that was asked of us. We stopped going to work. We, we realized that we closed our churches. We, we did almost anything. Now, I'm not going to get into a debate with anybody here about whether that was right or wrong. I'm just going to say, do you see fear just made us surrender things that say, wait a minute, I want to talk a little bit more about this. What do you mean you're closing my, my gift shop? Or what do you mean you're closing, you know, you know we, we, we were so afraid we would just do anything, you know. Fear is incredible. It makes us act in ways that are unpredictable. We can get angry, but we can also just flee. Remember, there's a kind of, well, there's really, if you really study animal behavior, there's three responses to crushing fear. You can either fight or flee or freeze. That freeze response, that's called playing dead, playing possum, you know. Let your enemy think you're dead and slither away quietly when he's looking the other way. Um, but fight or flight or, or you know, or, or um, uh, freeze. Now, um, this is, it's, it's a powerful thing. If you can get people to be afraid, you can control them, see? So why, why is it necessarily that this army goes into a panic at the death of Holofernes? Um, I don't absolutely know. I do know that fear, for better or worse, is an incredible manipulator. And I want you to be careful about this because governments, even preachers and teachers and others can set fears loose in you and control you and wrap you around their finger. Likewise, um, uh, now that doesn't mean there's nothing to fear ever, but but you see the idea, we have to be careful about fear. We tend to act irrationally when confronted with gripping fear, okay? Um, there's all kinds of crowd instincts and panic and group panic that takes over when, when, when these things are introduced. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that, but I don't want to get into a long political debate about what we should have done in response to COVID. Um, I'm just going to say that... Um, somewhere in all of this, you see the power of fear. Okay, Debbie, you have a question. Um, yeah, on the uh, last chapter, I was trying to understand the purpose behind the repeated comment or point, if there was, I may be reading too much into it, is that there was the tearing of their tunics. Is that something that represented um, a piece of loss or something? I, I wasn't quite understanding tearing up their tunics. And by the and, way, uh, Betty, you, you may remember that even, in, for example, in the New Testament, when Jesus would say something uh, that they considered shocking or blasphemous, for example, when he said, are you, I put you under oath, are you the Messiah, the son of the living God? I am. 
and you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. And with that, the high priest tore his garments. So there's a, uh, the idea here is, um, um, it's sort of a literary device. I'm not saying it didn't happen actually, but it, it tends to be a literary device that says, you know, like remember a Batman and Robin? Now Robin would say, holy, whatever, Baptist, Batman. Mm -hmm. No, it's kind of a the rending of the garments is this is, oh, my God, did you hear what was just said? Did you see or do you know what just happened? It means that, you know, whole, heavens to Mercatroyd, you know, um, this is serious. This is not just some minor annoyance or a gnat. This is a major vulture coming in and, you know, attacking us. This is, you know, so it's, it's a literary device at that level. In the Jewish culture, not just the Jewish, but the whole Middle Eastern culture, because you see, these aren't Jews who are rending their garments. To rend your garments is to say, heaven forfend, heaven forbid, this is the worst thing I can imagine. My beautiful garments, I'm willing to tear to show how awful this thing is. Okay? Okay. Okay. So, um, also, I wanted to say something on the point about fear. I think hmm. with that in mind, you look at fear as putting you in a, a position of the unknown. Oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? I'm, I'm lost, I don't have any control over something. Mm -hmm. And that there is this loss of something. Yeah. And without that piece to hold on to kind of keep you in balance or in check, you just, you lose your way. What is that so piece? fear would do that. What is that though that's, what is that piece you're talking about? It's probably most times it's a false sense of something, a false sense of security, okay. something that you can hold on to keep you on track. Yeah. And if it's gone, then you're like, oh my, you're like you say, you're in a panic. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Yeah. Well, I, I guess, and, and Debbie, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, I, I can, I can speak in riddles sometimes, but he, here, here's the deal. If we're close to God, the, the, we can't be easily unsettled or frightened. If we're far from God, we're sitting ducks. So trust and a sense of the closeness of God are what save us from the often irrational, panicky notions of fear. Okay? Amen. 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 Lord. All right, let's move on. And, you know, we got we got a few things to go through. It's getting a little bit late, but we're still on target here. Um, we see that. Um, Monsignor. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, Steve Brooks had his, oh, had his hand up for a minute. Steve, where are you? Steve Graham. Did you have something to say? She said Steve Brooks. Oh, Steve Brooks. Did you have uh, something to say? I'm sorry that I didn't see it. All right. Well, we'll continue. All right. Um, now, um, uh, so again, they tore the garbage. Okay, verse 15 or chapter 15, right? When the men in the tents heard it, they were amazed at what had happened. Fear and trembling came over them. They did not wait for one another. Uh, but with one impulse, they all rushed out and fled by every path across the plain and through the hill country. And those who had camped in the hills around Bethulia also took flight. The men of Israel and every one of, that was a soldier rushed upon them. And Uzziah sent men 
to Bet Omashatha and Bebai and Choba and Kola and all the frontiers of Israel uh, to tell them what had taken place and to urge all to rush out upon their enemies and destroy them. And when all the Israelites heard it, with one accord, they fell upon the enemy and cut them down as far as Choba. Um, those in, Israel, in Jerusalem and all the hill country also came, for they had told, to, were told what had happened to the camp of the enemy, and those in Gilead and Galilee outflanked them, and with great slaughter, even beyond Damascus and its borders, uh, the rest of the people of Bethulia fell upon the Assyrian camp and plundered it and were greatly enriched. And all the Israelites, when they returned from the slaughter, took possession of what remained in the villages and the towns and the hill country in the plain, got a, a great amount of booty, um, in other words, reward for their vast, uh, for there was a vast uh, quantity of it. All right. Now, some, to some degree, this may sound to us moderns a little crass, a little, you know, you, you kill every one of them and you take their wealth and uh, isn't God good, you know. But at the end of the day, um, we're still dealing in an earlier period of the Jewish people where God's blessings was often thought of in terms of physical wealth, physical, you know, how did God show you blessings? Because their, their, their notion of the afterlife or the, the life of heaven was less developed than ours. And so in some sense, they developed what we would might call today a prosperity gospel that God shows you blessings by giving you gold and silver and uh, flocks of sheep and goats and calves and you know so that there's a kind of a, a materialistic valuing of God's blessings to some degree I, I'd like to think remember if you really see scripture we see that God brings us through stages where when we're young in the early chapters of the Bible all we understand is ready cash or some sort of good thing of the earth. But as we move along and hopefully mature and we get into the old, from the move from the old covenant to the new covenant, we start to see that treasure in heaven and the virtues are our great reward. Okay, so I would say that um, we want to see the Bible as a work in progress that brings us out of, you know, brutal you know, kinds of things into a more um, sophisticated understanding of God's riches and blessings. So I think, you know, let it go at that. And I would just say that um, I don't have much more time to develop it because it is getting late and I want to wrap up the book. You can ask me a question in a minute if you do or want to. Now, uh, we're continuing on through verse 15 or chapter 15 at verse 8. Joachim, the high priest and the senate of the people who lived at Jerusalem, came to witness the good thing that the Lord had done for Israel and to see Judith and to greet her. And when they met her, they all blessed her and with one accord said to her, you are the exaltation of Jerusalem. You are the great glory of Israel. You are the pride of our nation. You have done all this single handedly. Um, she would um, she would object to that, of course. She said, I did it by the power of God. But you have done great good to Israel, and God is well pleased with it. May Almighty God, the Lord, bless you forever. And they all and all the people said, Amen. Amen. Now, 
by the way, these verses are often used and applied to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, we have antiphons that are based on this, you know, uh, that are applied to Mary on certain feast days, like Assumption or Annunciation and so on. To Gloria Jerusalem, to Letitia Israel, to Onoprecentia Popoli Nostri. You know, you're the you're the the joy of Israel, the glory of Jerusalem. You're the highest honor of your people, and so on. But these are sung to Judith and applied to Mary um, as well. Uh, in the New Testament times. Okay. Uh, now, verse 11. So all the people plundered the camp for 30 days. They gave Judith the tent of Holofernes and all of his silver dishes and his beds and his bowls and all the furnishings. And uh, she took them and loaded her mule <laughs> and hitched up her carts and piled all the things on them. Then all the women of Israel gathered to see her and blessed her. And some of them performed a dance for her, and she took its branches and and gave them to gave, gave them to the women who were with her, and they crowned themselves with olive wreaths, and she who uh, and those who were with her, and she went before all the people in the dance, leading the women, while all the men of Israel followed, bearing their in, in bearing their arms and wearing garlands with songs on their lips. Don't you love that these men are bearing their arms? You know, this one woman conquered everything and they're they're walking out with swords and whatever. Well, okay, uh, nice got nicely done, guys. <laughs> I mean, your sword looks awfully polished and I don't see any signs of uh, conflict on it. Okay, all right. Now, um, but there's joy, obviously there's joy and, and the victory. Now, um, the next part of it is chapter 16 is often considered as something that was added later or from a different author who, who has this hymn or this song of thanksgiving. I don't know. I don't really care. But the point is it has a different flavor. We go from prose to poetry and hymnody uh, in this last chapter. Um, so before we look at it, the story is basically finished, right? We have seen that an enormous threat, unbelievable threat, had come upon to utterly destroy them, to just grind them down with its teeth and spit them out. And um, we start to see that what will you possibly ever do against such a formidable foe? And the Lord says, less is more. Let's put together a very small army. So earlier, uh, Howard and I were talking about Gideon, who went up against an army of 60,000 Midianites with 300 men and won the day. Here, we see something even more leveraged. It's one woman and her servant girl going up against a huge army, and they win. Um, so we want to understand that we tend to count numbers and want to see big troops and large numbers and percentages. And we look at opinion polls and all these kinds of things. God doesn't care about that stuff. In fact, sadly, God had to say, I'm sorry to say to you, most people aren't going to make it. The narrow road that leads to salvation is narrow and few find it. The wide road that leads to destruction is unfortunately very wide and many choose it rather. So, don't be obsessed with numbers, with power, with worldly ways of assessing power. Stay close to Christ. Bring your five loaves and two fishes 
and go to work. If you're a young family, raise up your kids well, set them loose. If you're an older family, work with your children and your grandchildren, continue to bless them and try to get them to, to, to do their best. If you're a priest like me, form your parish, preach, teach, never give up, set them loose, okay? I could go on, but you see the vision, okay? Use your five loaves, your two fishes, and go to work. Trust God. It's not about numbers or size of armies. Uh, it is that the Lord can make a way out of no way, and he can write straight with crooked lines, and can beat an army of 60 grand with 300 men, or an army of 72 grand and with one woman and her slave girl. Uh, Anne, give your hand up. Uh, Monsignor, I just wanted to say that um, when I read Judith the first time, it was in reference to the fourth glorious mystery. And oh. they reference um, Judith for the assumption. Yes, exactly. And, 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 so, and many of these anaphons are applied to Mary from, from the book of Judith and do refer to her assumption or also her queenship. Why is this so? Well, how is it? that instead of going to some great queen of some great nation to bring forth the incarnation, God went to a little girl, 14, in a little town of Nazareth, barely 300 people, and through her entered the world. So the, again, it's, it's that remnant kind of theology. God did not go to the obvious places of power. Uh, he didn't go to some... Mm -hmm great nation he went to a hidden little village that nobody had ever even heard of and those who did hear say what good can possibly come from nazareth and so mm -hmm. come and see jesus you know and this little girl 14 years old 15 maybe lived there and god took her up and used her and brought jesus into the world and uh this is so you see the the image of judith reflected here this mm -hmm. is God often, and not 100% of the time, but most of the time, acts through smallness, tininess, through remnants. All right. Now, there is this final hymn. I, we're getting a little late, but as I say, I'm trying to wrap it up for you tonight, okay? <laughs> Let's go through it quickly. It's beautiful. Um, and um, it, it's just a quick summary of the book. And then some final afterthoughts. So let me read it as quickly as I can. Then Judith began this thanksgiving before, the, before all of Israel and loudly sang this song of praise, saying, um, begin a song to my God with tambourines, to my uh, Lord with cymbals, raise to him a new song, exalt him upon it and call upon his name. This sounds very Psalm-like, right? So they, these were people who knew that Judith had known and read the Psalms and was acquainted with them, and she echoes some of their themes. Let's continue. Verse three, for God is the Lord that crushes wars. He has delivered me out of the hands of my pursuers and brought me to his camp in the midst of his people. Now those Assyrians came down from the mountains of the north. They came down with myriads of warriors, multitudes and blocking up our very valleys. Their cavalry covered the hills um, and they boasted that they would burn up my territory and kill my young men with the sword and dash my infants to the ground and seize my children as prey and take my virgins as booty. Now, again, this is kind of, she's taking up the voice 
of Israel or Judah, Judith, I mean Judah, and kind of personifying it, okay? Verse 6, but the Lord Almighty has foiled them by the hand of a woman, for their mighty one did not fall by the hands of a young man, or nor did the sons of the Titans strike him, nor did a tall giant set upon her. But Judith, the daughter of Merai, undid him with uh, the beauty of her countenance. For she took off her widow's mourning to exalt the, the oppressed in Israel. She anointed her face with ointment and fastened her hair with a tiara and put on the linen gown to deceive him. Her sandal ravished his eyes. By the way, um, in a much more modest time, uh, men uh, would be excited if they saw the ankle of a woman. You sometimes see that in, in, in uh, old uh, old things. And notice, as being said here, he put on a she put a, put a linen gown to deceive him. Her very sandal ravished his eyes. So you know. However much women cover up, men are going to say, what, what isn't covered up? And they're going to kind of say, Ooh, look at that. <laughs> All right. Okay, enough said. But it's um, it's uh, interesting, you know, historical note there. Um, and um, it goes on to say, verse 9, her sandal ravished his eyes, her beauty captivated his mind, and the swords uh, severed his neck. Uh, the Persians trembled at, their, at her boldness. The Medes were daunted at her daring. Then my oppressed people shouted for joy. My weak people shouted, at the and the enemy trembled. They lifted up their voice, and the enemies were turned back. The sons of maidservants um, have pierced them through, and they were wounded like the children of fugitives. They perished before the army of the Lord. Um, I will sing to God my a new song. O Lord, you are great and glorious, wonderful in strength and impassable. Let all your creatures serve you, for you spoke and they were made. You sent forth your spirit and informed them. There is nothing that can resist your voice. By the way, we recite this passage in the bravery once a week. Um, you sent forth your spirit and informed them. There is none that can resist your voice. For the mountains shall be shaken to their foundations with the waters. At the presence of the rocks shall melt like wax. And those who fear you will continue. You you will continue to show mercy, for every sacrifice as a as a fragrant offering is a small thing, and all fat for burning offerings to you uh, is a very little thing. But he who fears the Lord shall be called great forever. But woe to those nations who rise up against my people! The Lord God Almighty will take vengeance on them. On the day of judgment, fire and worms he will give to their flesh, and they shall weep forever. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they worshipped God, and as soon as the people were purified, they offered their burnt offerings, their freewill offerings, and their gifts. And Judith also dedicated to God all the vessels of Holofernes, which the people had given to her, and all the canopy which she took for herself from his bedchamber, she gave as a votive offering to the Lord which means she burnt it up, basically, uh, on the fire of the altar. So the people continued feast, fasting, I'm sorry, feasting in the Lord before the sanctuary for three months, and Judith remained with them. Now, after this, everyone returned home to their own inheritance, and Judith went to Bethulia and remained on her estate 
and was honored in her time throughout the whole country. And many desired to marry her, but she remained a widow. And all the days of mm -hmm. her life after Manasseh, her husband, died, she was get she she mm -hmm. was eventually gathered to his people. In other words, she died. She became more and more mm -hmm. famous and grew old in her husband's house until she was 105 years old. And she mm. set she set her maid free, uh, her slave girl, in other words, and she died in Bethulia. And they buried her in the cave of her husband Manasseh and the house of Israel and mourned for her for seven days before she died. She distributed all her property to those who were next of kin and to her husband, uh, uh, next of kin to her husband Manasseh and her own nearest kindred. No one ever again spread terror among the people of Israel in the days of Judah for a long time after her death. Okay. So it's a beautiful summary. Now, enough said. I, I, I'd like to comment on a lot of little things in there, but it's late. But I think what we, we've seen here is that, again, just remember, don't lose heart. We're in a tough situation, I think, where we find a lot of uh, uh, culture that's mesmerizing to our children and grandchildren and so on. But God is up to something, and he's going to, on his time, reveal it it'll be a, a judith figure it'll be a it'll be a david figure it'll be someone that will lead us through this mess it'll be a francis it'll be a uh it'll be uh saint Teresa of avila or catherine of siena uh it it will happen and god will do it so just keep praying and waiting and watching but not passively what are your five loaves and your two fishes engage the battle by taking, yes, but what are my five loaves and two fishes? I'm just a little person. I don't have influence. Stop all that. Stop all that. You know, you've all heard that thing that's out there on the internet somewhere, you know. You think God can't use you, you know. Poor Leah, she was ugly. Um, you know, uh, uh, Samson was a drunk, you know, or womanizer. You know, you get the idea. Uh, Lazarus was dead. And you think God can't use you? So, again... All of these are ways of saying, what are your five loaves and two fishes? Engage the battle. Continue to fight at the level you've been assigned. Take care of your part of the vineyard. Leave the big picture to God. God will raise up someone and anoint them to lead us through this. Not yet, maybe, but soon and very soon in God's time. All right. Can I say yes? Yeah, yes, yes, Howard. Yeah, that that uh, for me, that mm. someone could also be a Monsignor Charles Pope. <laughs> that's a good one, Howard. Look, I like that. And yes, and so it is, is Howard. And that's so a good one. Is. That's a good one, you Howard. Like that, that was a great Howard. one. I like that. I'm not gonna leave you out of the equation, Monsignor Pope. So don't try to get out of this thing like Moses tried to get out. Oh, Just yeah. say yes, Lord. That's, that's, right. Yeah, that's right, Howard. That was a good one, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> that was great, Howard. I love that. Right. Well, listen, you know, bless you saying that. Of course, I think that we want to look also maybe for more of a worldwide figure. And, you know, God will decide who that is and how. But my only exactly point Exactly right. At least this much. I will make sure I bring my five loaves and two fishes every day <laughs> and do my, do my part. Yeah, my thing in. If he wants to multiply it and bring it up higher, that's up to him. All right. That's that's God's choice. That's God's choice. But 
I know there are some people that's praying, and God does answer prayer. So thank God for it. But there's a there's a scripture I just want to read real quick uh, from Proverbs. Yeah. Uh, thirty one. Oh yeah. Thirty one twenty nine Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou exceed, excellest them all. Yeah. Favor is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Yes. If God be for us, who can be against us? Right. All right. Amen. 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 Well, listen, it's been wonderful to go through this. I will um, work hard to get um, the recordings of this book put together. It's the first time I've ever really taught it uh, publicly. Um, and the recordings might be good to, you know, so I will work hard to put them all together and have them for you within a week. But next week, thank you, Christopher, you want to come back on if you're still there? Oh, yeah, still here. Yeah, you're going to talk to us about the virtues, faith, hope, and... Oh, yeah, the commercial. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for a commercial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, we'll go through over three sessions, oh, four virtues, which is uh, kind of mismatched, but uh, we'll make it work. And okay. those are going to be the four cardinal virtues, they're called. Prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. So we'll start next week with kind of an introduction onto what the virtues are, what the cardinal virtues are, and then get started with prudence next week, I think. Fantastic. Great. Looking forward to it, Christopher. <laughs> All right. And remember... You, you see, uh, as we talked a lot today, what was it that enabled Judith? Was she the smartest person who ever lived? Was she, did she have you know, more money than anyone else? No, it was the virtues. These empowered her to become a strong woman with a sharp blade in God's hands. You know, God didn't go to Cleopatra. He All went right. to Judith. All right. You know, he went to Judith. Yes. You, you know, Monsignor, uh, uh, the heading for tonight's Bible study was uh, spiritual warfare. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I was uh, trying to line up uh, a lot of what you were saying. Mm -hmm. That's why my head was down here in my Bible, um, yeah. writing notes and stuff. And uh, a spiritual warfare is, uh, is uh, something uh, of interest to me. Yeah. And uh, so I, I was looking at how she uh, fought off every all the naysayers, yeah, all of the uh, folks that was out that were outlining all the difficulties, all the perceptions of her mm -hmm. femininity, uh, not being able to accomplish the goal, yeah. all of the uh, I mean, yeah. that's war that she was fighting she fought a battle that was beyond you know all of the exterior things that you yeah the, the what chief did is so far and beyond you know these little passages on a piece of paper yeah, yeah. the culture the the uh everything that you can you want to put yourself in somebody's footsteps. Mm -hmm. This woman was mighty, and she was almighty because of God. Yeah, yeah. And because she decided to 
surrender everything that she was mm-hmm. and had. Put it all on the line. All on the line. And her maidservant, along with her, yes. said, yes, let's do this. Go out, step outside the gate yes. into the wilderness. Mm. Into the wilderness, not knowing, not having, not doing, having anything, but what God gave her at birth. Yeah. All right now. And so again, and this was awesome, Monsignor. And she uh, fought that battle yeah. by the grace of God. Yeah. And we thank God for his word. We had a lot of good sessions uh, tonight, yes, but also so many other sessions as we made our way through this book. So it's, uh, again, just one of those more hidden jewels is there uh, waiting to be discovered. And um, we, we did. So now I'm thinking when we resume in the fall, uh, based on something Howard was saying earlier about Gideon, it might be simply a good idea to look through the book of Judges, where we look at all these, there's a lot of stories in there about charismatic leaders that the Lord raises up and shows virtues and so on. So I think the book of uh, Judges will be a good one to into. Don't I think, just, you know, law court. I, just took, I, I just wanted to show you how I was taking that title. Yes. literally and uh, spiritually yes. and applying it to uh, what you were saying uh, tonight. And I, and I appreciate that because um, it made me, it made me look at it, you know, like I was putting myself walking, mm. you know, walking in her shoes and, and everything when you did the right. summary and it was uh, right. you know, eye opening for me. Thank you so much. Okay. So next week. Yeah. Uh, thank you much. Oh yes. Thank you. Will someone line and lead us out in prayer? And remember, next week we'll we'll send out a reminder. But um, we'll have uh, Deacon Deacon uh, Christopher and uh, Feist, and he will be uh, leading us through some some studies on the virtues. You want to pray, Liz? I'll, okay. I'll do it. All right. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and honor and glory and praise for this evening's session. We are so. Honored and and um, blessed about uh, the Holy Spirit and how He anoints these Bible studies that You provide for us. We're so grateful that we can continue uh, these Zoom sessions. So many of us would miss out on this this grace that You give us if we couldn't do uh, use this technology. And we thank you for all each each and every person that shares and uh, questions and uh, provide uh, their prayer request and allows us to pray for the needs of each other and to continue to have divine appointments for one another. We are grateful for Mm -hmm. that opportunity, Lord God. And we ask you to continue to provide for each and every person that needs you, Lord God, out there uh, for their healings or their uh, comforts and uh, their growth and personal spirituality or whatever else they need. You have that on your heart and mind, Mm -hmm. I know, Lord, and you'll take care of those needs. 
And we ask you to continue to bless each and every one of us, especially Monsignor and the uh, Mm -hmm. young gentleman that's going to be with us uh, next week, Lord God, uh, to anoint them and keep them in your care. Uh, The seminarian, keep them in your care until they come back again. We ask these and all the all the things, other things that we need in Jesus' mighty name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Amen.